Chapter Nine of the Flintheart by Eden Philpotts. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Nine, the Entertainment. The first item was the great song of Mister Zagabog, and it went like this: We shall sing the magic story of an isle beyond the sun, of a precious golden island never seen by any one. So listen, listen, listen to our soft and limpid lays of the island and the Zagabog from old Precambrian days. Chorus, the mild and humble Zagabog, the tender-hearted Zagabog with prehistoric ways. Upon his wondrous head he wore a gold and ruby crown. His eyes were green and rather sad. His tail hung meekly down. But on a throne of early mud he comfortably sat, and ruled his golden island in a way we marvel at. He was a peaceful zagabog, a practical old zagabog, and quite unique at that. For nature only made but one, though we shall never know why just a single zagabog exhausted nature so. His subjects first were trilobites, the newest of the new, and then came other bygone beasts that leap and swarm and flew. But all obeyed the zagabog, the great primeval zagabog, which they were right to do. From periods anteprimary he dated, as we know, and with the keenest interest observed that wondrous show of shells and fish and monstrous elfs and dragons on the wing, then noted down the changes that the rolling ages bring. That scientific zagabog, that most observant zagabog, and he loved everything. Some twenty million years rolled by, and all the isle went well. Great palms grew on the mountain tops. Huge ferns adorned the dell, and everywhere huge reptiles took their Mesozoic ease, and ate each other frequently with snap and sneeze. But their beloved Zagabog, their wise and wakeful Zagabog, they always tried to please. For in these secondary times, when monsters had their day, Triassic and Jurassic giants about his feet would play. And through the air there sometimes came the Archaeopteryx, a funny sort of feathered thing where bird and dragon mix. Your fossil, said the Zagabog, the humor-loving Zagabog, will put them in a fix. He made no laws, he made no fuss, he just sat on his throne, with a genial simplicity peculiarly his own. The Plesiosaur, the Tiliosaur, the early crocodile, the weird Cretaceous ocean folk who never, never smile, all worshipped their old Zagabog, their quaint benignant Zagabog, in his enchanted isle. More ages passed, more monsters passed, and others took their place. The Zagabog he still went on from endless race to race, till Toxodongs and mammoths came with sloths of stature grand, whose small relations still hang on in many a sunny land. And though an old-time Zagabog, a right-down early Zagabog, he gave them all his hand. For, rich with the wide wisdom of a million million years, he always an optimist, and felt no growing fears, 
till Paleolithic ages brought Dame Nature's latest joys, and all his golden island rang and rippled with the noise. Good gracious, said the Zagabog. God bless us, cried the Zagabog. They're fairy girls and boys. Now altogether, about his throne and with laughter shrill the tiny people came, and climbed upon his aged knees and bade him make a game. And still he rules, and still he helps the fairies with their fun. Of course he'll never die himself, there being only one. One calm, persistent Zagabog, one dear pre-Cambrian Zagabog, beyond the setting sun. This very fine song of the history of the Zagabog was much admired, and the Zagabog himself liked it as well as anybody. First he called up De Quincey and patted him on the back and shook hands with him, and then the solo singers and the chorus and the orchestra were all brought up to be complimented, and everybody agreed that it was quite the best song that De Quincey had made. He got so excited that Charles was afraid he would break down and cry again, but he recovered presently and bowed to everybody, and then returned to his seat and dashed off a filbert shell of dry old whortleberry wine, vintage 1862. He was then quite himself once more, and ready to criticize the next item on the program. But there followed a brief delay. The Zagabog signaled to the Snick, and the Snick hastened to his side, and the Zagabog whispered to him. Then the Snick announced, in his most important tone of voice, that with the permission of His Majesty, the Zagabog would like to say four words. Everybody cheered, and the King answered, Certainly, as many words as you please, Mr. Zagabog. But the Zagabog only used the four that he wanted to, and they were very simple. He said, Please, may I smoke? And when the king had given permission, he brought out his cigar case and selected a cigar and bit the tip off. Then the snick struck a match and held it to the cigar, and the Zagabog, now perfectly happy, blew a column of smoke into the air and settled down to enjoy the next item on the program. I cannot tell you what sort of cigars he smoked because, if it was known, nobody would ever smoke any other sort. But I may mention this. It was a cheap cigar, and in the advertisements we are always told that it possesses the delicious flavor and aroma of the old Havana of a hundred years ago. And yet the price brings it within the reach of the most modest purse. So when you see that advertisement, you will know the sort of cigar the Zagabog liked and still likes. Pixies never smoke. Tobacco does not agree with them. Besides, many fairies, such as the trolls and dwergers and kobolds and other underground people who work in the mines, dare not do so because of the danger of explosions. The snick put on his glasses and read out the second item in the program, A Fairy Story Will Now Be Told by Hans Christian Andersen. This announcement was well received, and the aged sprite who went by that most famous of all names in all the realms of fairy got up and waited quietly for the applause to cease. 
He was very, very old, and his face was like a wrinkled walnut shell, and his eyes were black, and his hair and beard were white as a tuft of the cotton grass that dances over a Dartmoor bog and tells you to look out where you are going. This ancient person had always been a great teller of stories, and some he invented, but the best that he told were about things that had really happened to fairies in the past, and the ones they liked most of all were about their adventures with human beings. Now Hans Christian Andersen cleared his throat, sucked a honeydew lozenge to steady his vocal cords, and began with all the ease and finish of a skilled storyteller, the tale of The Old Woman and the Tulips. In the days of your majesty's great-grandfather, we pixies had rather more to do with human beings than is at present the case. The deterioration of mortals set in about a hundred years ago, and it has steadily increased, with the result we have had less and less to do with them, and I fear that before long our relations with the human kind will cease altogether. The fault, I need hardly say in this company, is their own, and nobody is likely to contradict me when I add that the loss will also be theirs. At this point in the story Charles was horrified to hear Unity interrupt the speaker. In her tiny but shrill voice she piped out these words, I wonder if you would make it easier, please. I don't know what you are talking about. Some fairies cried, Hush, hush, and the snick said, Order, and De Quincey was furious that any guest of his should do such a rude thing, and Charles was just going to apologize humbly for his sister, on account of her age, when the old fairy spoke. You are perfectly right, he said. I stand corrected. When anybody uses a word of more than three syllables in a fairy story, he doesn't know his business. It shan't occur again. At the same time, declared the king, I insist on knowing who interrupted. De Quincey got up. A human girl, your royal highness, he explained. Her brother, who is a human boy, is here as my guest and I understand from him that she would come. I owe it to myself, however, to declare that she was not invited. We will look into the matter after the entertainment, said the king. Then he turned to Hans Christian Andersen and bade him proceed. In the time of your majesty's great-grandfather, resumed the storyteller, there was an old woman who lived by the river Dart and she grew very lovely tulips in her garden. They were white and scarlet and yellow and purple, and some were streaked, and some were blotched, and some were splashed with a lovely mixture of dawn and sunset colors. She was a good old woman, and the fairies liked her so well that they used to churn her butter for her, and clean her cottage, and look after her bees, and do all the thousands of other things that fairies can do for mortals, if mortals will only permit them. In exchange for these kind acts, the old woman let us have the free use of her tulip-bed, and in the spring all the fairy mothers used to take their babies to the tulips, 
because there is no better and pleasanter cradle for a baby than a tulip in full bloom. When the sun is out, the tulip opens wide, but when the sun sets, the tulip shuts up again. And so, you see, as a cradle it is a perfect flower, and I have known as many as a hundred fairy babies lying in the tulips at one time while their mothers rocked the stems. Then, at evening, the tulips and the babies would all go to sleep together, and the petals of the flowers would close tight, so that no wandering rascal of a spider or beetle could blunder in upon the babies and frighten them, or rain fall upon them if there chanced to be a shower. It was one of the great events of the fairy year when the tulips came out, and after that pleasant old woman died, as even the best of mortals and fairies have to do, we all hoped that some equally nice old woman would come to the cottage and take care of the tulips. But alas, instead of another nice old woman, there came a very horrid young man, and he dug up the tulips, flung them into the river, and planted rows of turnips there instead. Your Majesty's great-grandfather was furious, and so was everybody else, but that did not make any difference. I need hardly tell you that we took very good care the horrid young man's horrid young turnips were a great failure, and, indeed, we allowed nothing to grow in that piece of land again. He tried all sorts of things, but he never tried tulips, which were the only plants that we should have permitted to prosper. And the end of the story is that we always looked after that good old woman's grave in the churchyard at Whittacombe. There was nobody else belonging to her who cared to do so, but we did, out of gratitude to her memory, and never a weed grew there and never a mole burrowed there, but the grass was always trim and neat, and a white violet was the sole flower that we allowed to grow upon it. And that is the end of my simple tale. Then the old fairy bowed and sat down. A good enough story, but rather too sad for the occasion, said the king. The Zagabog, however, thought very highly of it, and complimented Hans Christian Andersen on his language, and took wine with him, and hoped that the telling of the story had not made him tired. The Snick then made an announcement. The first half of our entertainment is now concluded, he said, and before we proceed to the second half there will be an interval of fifteen minutes for refreshments. End of chapter 9